Hey, folks, you got to pose in the matrix here. It's um, the 2nd of August already, uh, 2021, and uh, exactly 7.01 p.m. So tonight we're doing a little different. We're not doing a live show. We're doing a, this show because it's it's easier for everybody to be able to get on. And, um, you know, we, we can interface better using uh, Skype. So we're doing this, and I'll load it up later on tonight uh, to rumble and, and do the audio files so that you folks that are listening can um, – can actually hear what's going on too. So, um, anyway, well, I want to introduce Gordy Tong. Hi, Gordy. Hi, everybody. Yeah, and then there's Brian, the guy Hi. behind the sun. <laughs> yeah. My personality. Are you having are you having an earthquake there or something? <laughs> it's, it's sunny California. I don't. It's, I, <laughs> <laughs> okay, There's folks. Um, really bright in California right now. So yeah. Well, you got to have something to lift up your spirits. Yeah. Uh, folks, tonight we're going to uh, approach a subject that, um, you know, Gordy and I and Brian have all talked about at one time or another, but um, not on this format. So we're going to be talking about strange disappearances. Um, there's a lot of them going on these days. Um, if you've ever listened to David Pilates um, and other and other speakers and um, and people that make videos online about this subject, it's very, very, um, very interesting. Uh, a lot of people are disappearing in national parks and they're really all over the place. And uh, and uh, there's an interesting scriptural take on that, too, that we're going to explore tonight. So, um, uh, Gordy, I, I know that you've been on before, but uh, I don't know if you want to just give a little bit of background about yourself. And uh, if, if you feel led to, if you want, we'll just jump into the, uh, the subject matter. Um, okay. Um... Yeah, we're going to talk about um, people that are having um, what appears to be paranormal disappearances. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned David. Uh, did you mention David Pilates earlier? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to, you know, uh, there's a, a clip. Maybe we can start not with the one we just were reviewing, but there's a clip uh, from a YouTube channel. And it's called the, uh, the BC the BC uh, Triangle or the uh, BC's Bermuda Triangle. It's a geographic area, but they're going to talk about other triangles as well, where there's unusually high numbers of people disappearing, mm -hmm. adults, children, couples. And it's not always within this strict geographical location, but you have a kind of a rough triangle here in BC that stretches from the West Coast. Some, some people say all the way to Vancouver Island up to the interior, to the Salmon Arm, Kamloops area, and down to Hope in the border, and mm -hmm. up to Fraser Valley again toward Vancouver and Whistler. That area is a place where, um, yeah, a lot of people are being reported uh, disappearing. David Pilates has mentioned Canada in some of his, uh, I think he wrote a book about Canada, and he said that in um, parts of Canada, uh, where there's been reports of light, lights in the sky, uh, cryptids, Bigfoot. Um, yeah, there's getting to be more reports of people disappearing. Uh -huh. So uh, I could introduce uh, uh, a video about just what I'm talking about. Um, uh, so we can watch a little bit of that and then sure. discuss it. And then we'll look at what the scriptures might say about this possibility or subject. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds well, great. Let me, just, let me see if I can find the, um, the British Columbia. Oh, here it is. Yeah, I found it. And there is the infamous Nevada Triangle. Wait, not yet. 
<laughs> I'm just going to start at the beginning of this thing. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. And that. Wait, wait one second. The sound is not coming through. For decades, researchers have observed that people. Okay. Hi, I'm Daisy Boyden, and you're watching Hammers and Peters. For decades, researchers have observed that people tend to vanish with uncommon frequency in certain triangular regions throughout North America. Up a little bit. In 1964, Beautiful. American author Vincent Gaddis used the term Bermuda Triangle to describe an area in the North Atlantic where a number of ships and aircraft have mysteriously disappeared. Lake Michigan is home to the Great Lakes Triangle, an area identified by aviator Jack Gourlay, in which fleets of ships have vanished with all hands. And there is the infamous Nevada Triangle, a stretch of mountainous desert in the American Southwest that has swallowed over 2,000 airplanes. In 2019, American author David Paulides may have inadvertently discovered a similar triangle in the interior plateau of southern BC, Canada, where an unusual number of hikers have vanished without a trace. In this six-part series, we'll explore some of the strange disappearances and eerie native legends surrounding this mysterious region in Western Canada. A region, perhaps most appropriately dubbed, the British Columbia Triangle. Wow. For decades, Canada has enjoyed an international reputation as one of the safest and friendliest countries in the world. A place where crime is low and where people sleep soundly at night behind unlocked doors. This perception is not unfounded. Since its very first Global Peace Index report in 2007, a global think tank called the Institute for Economics and Peace has consistently ranked Canada as the 4th to the 14th safest nation on the planet. Despite its glowing reputation as a bastion of safety and security, the Great White North has a few black blemishes where the blanket of benignity enfolding the rest of the country fails to extend. Among the most infamous of these is the so-called Highway of Tears, a stretch of the BC Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert in central British Columbia, on which dozens of female hitchhikers, most of them indigenous, have disappeared since 1970. Mm. The turbulent waters of the Great Lakes constitute another scar on Canada's dark underbelly, where entire freighters and their crews have vanished without a trace. From 2007 to 2019, the Salish Sea, which separates Vancouver Island from mainland British Columbia and Washington, coughed up 20 disembodied human feet encased in shoes, casting a sinister shadow upon Canada's Pacific Northwest. And there is the notorious Nahani Valley in Canada's Northwest Territories, where the headless corpses of prospectors were routinely discovered throughout the 20th century. David Politis is an American researcher and former officer of the San Jose Police Department who has spent the past decade chronicling mysterious disappearances in the United States, like those which characterize the aforementioned locales. He has published his findings in 10 books and two documentaries, which form a series entitled Missing 411, 411 being a reference to the phone number for directory assistance in Canada and the United States, and a slang denotation for details and information. In his books and documentaries, 
Paulinus claims that he first began his missing 411 series following his visit to a certain U.S. national park, during which he was approached by two off-duty park rangers. The rangers, knowing that Paulinus was an author, expressed their concern that an alarming number of people were disappearing in U.S. national parks under very peculiar circumstances. They suspected that park officials were aware of the strangeness of these disappearances and were deliberately concealing their inexplicable particulars from the American public. Following this unsettling encounter, Politis filed a series of Freedom of Information Act requests to obtain a list of people who had gone missing in the jurisdiction of the U.S. Park Police, hoping to sift through the list to find some of the bizarre cases to which the Rangers alluded. The National Park Service responded to each of his requests by claiming that no such list existed, an allegation which Politis, as a former police officer and detective, found dubious. Hmm. Politis then requested that the National Park Service create a list of National Park's disappearances for him, as was his right as a published author, and was informed that the service would cost him 1.4 million U.S. dollars. Eschewing the offer, the author set about collecting information on National Park disappearances himself, perusing newspaper archives and scouring the internet in his effort to uncover the dark secret which the National Park Service seemed intent on hiding. Throughout the course of his research, Politis observed that many of the strangest National Park's disappearances shared certain unusual characteristics, which he calls profile points. The more cases he researched, the stronger this pattern manifested itself. In time, Politis became so convinced of the significance of these profile points that he neglected to research cases which lacked them. If the disappearance doesn't match our profile, he stated in one of his books, we won't look into it. The first profile point which Politis identified is the inability of tracking dogs to follow a scent at the scene of a disappearance. In nearly 99% of the cases I've documented, he writes in his books, bloodhounds brought to the point where the victim was last seen cannot find a scent aren't interested in tracking, or seem oblivious to the smell. As a former member of a law enforcement SWAT team that had the canine unit attached to our division, I can guarantee that these dogs love their job and relish tracking people. This is one of the most prevalent profile points in the cases we have identified." Unquote. The second of Politis' profile points is inclement weather, including, quote, blizzards, fog, rain, snow, hail, dust storms, and freezing cold or hot temperatures." Unquote. This weather often picks up suddenly and unexpectedly following the victim's disappearance, precluding initial search and rescue efforts. The third and most mysterious profile point is a scenario in which the body of the missing person is discovered in an area that had been previously searched. Sometimes the location of the recovery has been searched dozens of times, Politis wrote. In one instance, the searchers had taken the same trail hundreds of times over the week, hiking to where they believed the victim was located. On one day of the search, a tree had fallen across the path, and the young victim was found lying on it. Nobody could explain the perplexing scenario." Unquote. Mm. Other profile points include missing clothes or shoes, disappearances which take place at twilight, cases in which the missing person suffered from an illness or disability at the time of his disappearance, Incidents in which the victim, upon being rescued, cannot recall the circumstances of his disappearance or the period preceding his discovery. Cases in which missing people are discovered near creeks, rivers, ponds, or lakes. Cases in which people vanish in areas abounding with granite or large boulders. Cases in which missing people are discovered in swamps or bogs. 
cases in which the victim vanished immediately after his companions lost sight of him, and the inexplicable malfunctioning of compasses and other equipment. Interesting. In addition to excluding cases which lack at least one of these profile points, Polinus neglected to research incidents in which the victim's disappearance appeared to be intentional, in which the victim suffered from mental health issues, in which signs of animal predation were discovered, and in which criminal activity occurred in conjunction with the disappearance. From 2012 to 2018, David Politis published eight books in which he documented mysterious disappearances in the United States and Canada, which satisfied his specifications. In 2019, he published Missing 411 Canada, the ninth book in his Missing 411 series, which treats exclusively with unexplained disappearances throughout the Great White North. In this book's introduction, Politis claims that several of his Canadian friends assisted him in his research by requesting files on disappearances that took place in Canada's national parks. Like the U.S. National Park Service, Parks Canada proved uncooperative and denied most of the requests. Missing 411 Canada comes with a map of British Columbia, on which most of the British Columbian disappearances outlined in the book have been plotted. In his book, Politis explains BC's special treatment by stating, quote, there is no other province in Canada that comes close to the number of missing people matching our profile points as British Columbia, unquote. Specifically, 40% of the Canadian missing persons cases of which Politis wrote occurred in supernatural BC, as Crown Tourism Corporations often style Canada's westernmost province. This appendant document, entitled the Missing 411 Geographical Cluster Map, British Columbia, includes five pink dots located in areas with unusually high concentrations of disappearances, which the legend identifies as clusters. The westernmost of these clusters lies at the center of Vancouver Island. Another lies along the Sea to Sky Highway north of Vancouver, in the vicinity of Whistler. The third sits near the town of Hope, at the mouth of the Fraser Canyon, while the fourth cluster is located on the South Thompson River east of Kamloops, near the town of Salmonarm. Two detailed maps of the Greater Vancouver area and Vancouver proper, respectively, are superimposed on the provincial map, indicating those areas to be localities of special importance. The map of Vancouver proper bears a fifth pink dot, which sits atop Mount Seymour, a mountain and ski resort northwest of North Vancouver. Mm. Vancouver Island could be a missing person study all by itself, Politis writes in his book. The author similarly emphasizes the significance of the Vancouver cluster stating that, quote, there is no other city in Canada that has the number of missing people within an 80-mile radius as Vancouver, unquote, and later describing the greater Vancouver area as one of the most significant clusters he has ever identified. Although he makes no mention of it in his book, Politis may have inadvertently identified a third megacluster deserving special consideration. In the year and a half following the publication of his book, a rash of unsolved disappearances took place within the rough triangle bounded by the clusters in Whistler, Hope, and Salmonarm. This triangle cuts through the heart of a geographic region known as the Middle Fraser Basin, which encompasses the Middle Fraser River, the Fraser Canyon, the valleys of the Lillooet and Thompson Rivers, and Harrison Lake. If the triangle is allowed to conform to the natural contours of the geographic region with which it is roughly congruent, Nearly every disappearance in southern British Columbia, outside of Vancouver Island and the greater Vancouver area, took place within it. Hmm. Before we can delve into the disappearances endemic to this megacluster, which has perhaps most aptly designated the British Columbia Triangle, we must first define its borders. 
The clusters identified by David Politis are nebulous by nature, since in most of the missing persons cases he chronicles, it is impossible to pinpoint the precise location at which the victim went missing. Since the clusters do not have fixed areas, we cannot use them as demarcation points. We also cannot adopt the boundaries of the middle Fraser Basin, despite that most of the disappearances which Politis identified in British Columbia's southern interior took place within it. The most widely accepted definition of the Middle Fraser Basin places the northern terminus of this geographic region north of the city of Quinell, well beyond the geographic pattern suggested by the disappearances. To make matters even more confusing, there is no real consensus as to what constitutes Greater Vancouver, a cluster with which the British Columbia Triangle could potentially overlap. Some define this area as the Metro Vancouver Regional District, while others contend that it extends across the Lower Mainland, encompassing the Lower Fraser Valley to the east and the Sea to Sky Corridor to the north. Hmm. Perhaps the most appropriate method by which to define the British Columbia Triangle, for reasons which will become more apparent later on in this series, is to defer to the traditional borders of the interior Salish First Nations, in whose territories almost every disappearance in British Columbia's southern interior took place. Specifically, most disappearances appear to have occurred within the ancestral homelands of the Lulawet and Thompson nations, as well as in the southerly Bonaparte, Kamloops, and Shushwap Lake divisions of Shushwap territory. If we adopt these ancient boundaries, the lower limit of the British Columbia Triangle follows the southerly border of both the Thompson and Lillooet nations, which separate these interior Salish people's traditional territory from that of their coast Salish cousins. The entire Hope Cluster lies within Thompson territory, and therefore within the British Columbia Triangle, although two of the three disappearances of which the cluster is comprised occurred within a territory over which both the Lower Thompson and the Squaw or Chilliwack First Nation, a coast Salish people, have historically laid claim. The Whistler Cluster, on the other hand, is split in two. Four disappearances took place north of the boundary line, in the Louette territory, and within the British Columbia Triangle, while three occurred south of the line, in Coast Salish territory, and in what some would consider the northernmost reaches of the Greater Vancouver area. Although it is tempting to regard these seven disappearances as part of the same cluster, on account of their close proximity to each other, as David Politis did, a natural geological barrier dictates that they be separated into two categories. The four disappearances north of the boundary line lie within the harsher, drier watershed of the Lillooet River, while the three to the south all took place in or south of the humid coastal Garibaldi Mountains. Interesting. Okay, uh, this, this uh, part one uh, goes for 43 minutes, so we can't... Uh, play yeah, it. I hear you. But anybody that wants to uh, watch the, the six parts, uh, this is part one of six, and it's, it's just called the British Columbia Triangle or Canada's Bermuda Triangle. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's a good introduction to what's happening just in... Mm -hmm. So that that's on YouTube, right, Gordy? That's on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, type in uh, the British Columbia Triangle, one of six, and our mm -hmm. Canada's Bermuda Triangle. Okay, I just wanted to do a little citation <laughs> so that people know where to go. And, yeah, yeah, good deal. And, and so since I've been uh, researching the UFO phenomena here in BC, some of the disappearances I've, I've heard... Um, yeah, are occurring in this triangle, and sometimes it's not an exact triangle, but we, you know, there's disappearances out in the Fraser Valley from here to Hope. Uh, there's hot spots where there's UFO activity, Bigfoot sightings, like in the State Lake area, Harrison, 
Pitt Lake, Northern Pitt Lake, Alouette uh-huh. Lake, uh, North Shore Mountains, north of Vancouver, then all the way over to Vancouver Island. In fact, there's a plateau there called Forbidden Plateau on Vancouver mm-hmm. Island where a lot of Aboriginal um, Native people have disappeared. This was uh, in earlier times when there was a battle between different tribes, and they sent some of their young people and elderly people up to this plateau. After the battle, they went up there to see if they can find these people, and all of them disappeared. So huh. that, that, that plateau is now called Forbidden Plateau. It was a ski resort area for a little while, but um, there's been kind of ongoing disappearances in this area. So the ski, the ski resort thing closed down. But mm-hmm. there's a ski resort where some people are disappearing in some of the other episodes of this uh, up in the Kamloops area. Fishermen have had missing time up there. They've seen UFOs uh, while fishing on, on lakes at night. Uh-huh. Uh, in this area, in that Merritt Kamloops area, my friend uh, a couple of years ago with some buddies went up there to camp out in, right in the Merritt area. It's a popular place for fishing and camping. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he saw, yeah, lots of UFOs at night. At his campsite, plus wow. Bigfoot creatures in the area as well. There's reports of Bigfoot creatures. So I did a, my own search of the missing people in that location. The Merritt area is like the the, the bullseye. <laughs> and uh-huh. in this town of Merritt is in a number of towns and communities, again, where people are disappearing. And and so this was on a UFO uh uh, kind of site describing missing missing people and and sighting reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Pilates uh, was didn't mention it um, or the reference to David Pilates, but he said in in some places in the states, some people that are disappearing are disappearing in places named after the devil. Oh, interesting. Like we have a lake near Stave Lake called Devil's Lake. Uh huh. And I, when I was up there a couple of summers ago, uh, I asked some of the RVs and campers up there, have you seen lights in the sky? Have you heard of uh, Bigfoot creatures? And have you heard of people disappearing? They said yes to all three. Wow. <laughs> there were UFOs oh, yeah. in that area. Uh, uh, Bigfoot creature sightings and people disappearing. I have a friend that lives in Mission, B.C., which is out in the valley. And mm-hmm. he's seen a UFO over this um, hillside where there's a Benedictine Abbey. And yeah. when I was out there with my, my friend, we went up to the Abbey. It's a, a kind of a high point. Uh, and there's a Benedictine Catholic Abbey up there. And that's where my friend Myth, who lives in Mission, said he saw a UFO or light. Huh. I think red or some other color over the Abbey. So when I was up there... Uh, this is quite a few acres of, of lawns and gardens and buildings and chapels and places where you can go for a spiritual retreat. Mm-hmm. This, this land used to belong to uh, Native people. Right. Uh, and maybe it was a sacred uh, mountain or site. But anyways, I met a fellow from Eastern Europe up there, and I said, to, uh, you know, he had a camera with him, and I said, well, what are you trying to take pictures of? And this was getting to be, you know, in the you know, later afternoon, evening. So, and he said, well, I've been see- I live in the town of Mission, and I've been seeing UFOs over this abbey. Huh. And I'm up here to see if I can capture some of the, some of the UFOs. 
uh, or lights. Uh-huh. That evening, I didn't see anything, and I don't know if he captured anything. We didn't stay that long when it got too dark. But that's where my brother had an encounter. Remember I really? told you he was up at the Abbey Grounds and mm-hmm, that's uh, a few right. years ago, and he claimed he saw a UFO land or was on the grass, and some mm-hmm. some some being came out, and I think he was telepathically or told he had an invitation <laughs> to oh go aboard <laughs> UFO. But he was a, a bit nervous about accepting that invitation, so he declined. Uh-huh. And the being took off and the plant up at the UFO. When my brother told me that over 10 years or 15 years ago, I said, no way, you're making this up, <laughs> you know. Yeah, right. But now that I've been out to mission and I've talked to people that have seen UFOs over this 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 high point over the city, mm-hmm. the name mission means that there was, there's, a, there's a, a Catholic mission, and that Catholic mission had its buildings and their gardens and their grounds. Uh, yeah, just where all, uh, people have been seeing all the lights. Interesting. I don't know huh. if, they, if the priests or the monks up there are reporting anything, but it is a place where people go for spiritual retreats. And some of the okay. retreats involve... Um, uh, Let's say uh, prayers to the Virgin Mary. Hey, hold on a second, Gordy. What, Brian? I can't see Gordy at all. Oh, oh okay. You might have okay. to move over to your left. I, I'm sorry. I, I can see half of this. I, I, I sunk down. My this seat is a little bit too flexible. I'm going to change the seat. Okay. Hang okay. On. Yeah. Sure enough. Sorry about that. I just. No, that's okay. You can see him okay. Yeah, but I got a wide, I got a 31 inch box. So. Oh, okay. This seat doesn't lean back so much, so I should be okay now. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, is you can you see him, Brian? I can see my. Um, now I can't. You, yeah, you got to move over to your left more, Gordy. Um, uh, this way. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Okay. Thank okay. you. Sorry, Okay, so uh, some of the people in the UFO meetup group are going to nearby mountains and parks. Mm-hmm. And they're using uh, protocols to make contact. Oh, uh, in the protocols, yeah. That, the protocols uh, that Dr. Stephen Greer right. uh, started to share when he was up here. He spoke mm-hmm. at the University of uh, uh, Simon Fraser University up on Burnaby Mountain. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, Burnaby Mountain is a place where there's been UFO settings as well. This is where their university is. Uh-huh. On a film set once, I, I met a, a fellow that uh, was teaching up there. He was, you know, he he was from Scotland, and he said while he was up there, he saw UFOs. Oh, my you know, goodness. Right up on the mountain. So mm-hmm. the, the mountain itself, Burnaby Mountain, is a hot spot as well. But UFO BC, uh, uh, that has a website, did reports of sightings all over BC, but they, they mentioned the Simon Fraser area as well. So right. anyways, uh, some of the people that are using these protocols, and the protocols in, in could include uh, uh, strobes. Uh, it can include... Um, uh, uh, mental intent, uh, um, a medita- different types of meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, mental intent is you put out thoughts to the universe or what you think are aliens uh-huh. to reveal themselves, to show up when you put out the thoughts. So, uh-huh. but before they they start to see the UFOs, they gather, they have lawn chairs, they go up to the mountain uh, parking lot up at Cypress Bowl, 
that's where some of the people are disappearing, according to Pilates. Really? There's another place called Mount Seymour and Grouse Mountain. But there's a parking lot up there, so some of the people from the meetup group go up there, use the protocols, including meditation. Sometimes they, if they start to see a UFO, they bring out their lasers oh, <laughs> and start shooting these UFOs with the lasers. That's not a good idea. No, not uh, at all. <laughs> but there's been some fishermen that shot a, uh, a flashlight at a UFO uh, somewhere. It was the Pasaluga case or something, or somewhere, uh, uh, Allagash case. Oh, yeah, Pasaluga. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, mm-hmm. yeah, but the Allagash case, they were on a boat fishing late at night. Right. And they saw a UFO, you know, over the lake. And one guy wanted to have a closer look. He whipped out his flashlight started shining his beam at the light at the at the ufo light and all of all four of them were abducted they had missing time oh great <laughs> that's a very famous case uh-huh. up in the merit Kamloops area there was a, a an incident called the incident of jaco lake where some trout fishermen fishing late at night again you know maybe there's a bit of light and or moonlight or something they started to f- fish on the lake and again, they start to see orbs showing up on the edge of the lake near the trees coming toward them on the lake, on, on their uh-huh. boat. Then they saw a UFO uh, as well, a dish-shaped UFO. Then they uh-huh. saw a whole bunch of loons on the lake all of a sudden. They, not t- they thought that was weird. And then yeah. there was a recent report on the UFO BC website that these same fishermen uh, said that, um, yeah, they not only saw all these things, but they had missing time. Huh. So I don't know how long this missing time was. It could have been several hours, but when they were returned to where they were, they were quite shaken. So mm-hmm. that report is on the UFO BC website. It's called Incident at Jaco Lake, and there's been a new update about what happened to these fishermen. Oh, so, so, so this is all in BC, in the Triangle. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in, there's a town called Squamish. I've done background work up there. Right. Um, I went into uh, uh, an Aboriginal arts craft place where they sell Aboriginal carvings, and I spoke to one of the people working there, and I said, uh, "Have there been Bigfoot sightings in this area?" And they said, "Yeah, the Aboriginal people and other people have seen Bigfoot." Well, I had a friend that used to live up in Squamish, and he said he saw lights over the mountains or UFOs. Huh. And then there was another crew that took up. Uh, and more recently, they took up night vision equipment. There's a group of people that were using more high-tech equipment. They went up to the Squamish area, and they were able to capture a very bright uh, UFO with their night vision equipment. That was really? Moving, yeah, uh, above the trees and, you know, near the mountains as well. So, and there's people disappearing up in that area, up in the Whistler, Pemberton areas, which you saw. Mm-hmm. So, why is there a link to all of this? What's the link between UFOs, Bigfoot, uh, the possibility that there are portals? I've been hearing mm-hmm. from another fellow that there's the Whistler area where people have disappeared is a portal area. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. Kamloops Merritt area where the fishermen have seen uh, UFO activity and, uh, and orbs is also a portal area. Mm-hmm. So the term portal is being used more commonly now by paranormal researchers to describe areas where there's, you know, high strangeness, UFO phenomena, cattle mutilations. 
the most famous one in the States is the Skinwalker Ranch in northeastern Utah. Yeah, we watched that series. It's been really good. <laughs> yeah. So now, again, this is used to be Indian land. Mm-hmm. And then I did some research on why there was Pilates was saying there was so many, um, so many UFOs seen, not UFOs, and people disappearing in the Yosemite uh, in the park area. Mm-hmm. Well, that land used to belong to Aboriginal people, right? Right. And so the U.S. government uh, kicked them out of this land and said, "Hey, this will be very nice land." Uh, for our purposes, or maybe even, you know, eventually it turned into a national park. Mm-hmm. So the Indians, without having any choice, were told to relocate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they didn't want to relocate. And so they said, well, hey, this is our happy hunting ground. It's where we fish and hunt, and there's fresh water here. Why should we move? But the government and the, and the, mili- and the militia, or whatever it was back then, said, no, you have to move. So there was a battle. Where the Indians' chief uh, son got killed. Oh wow! So, guess what the the chief and maybe some of his medicine men did? They cursed the land. They cursed the land. <laughs> I knew it. And so I, I I found an article online saying that yeah, and there's a new video I've seen about Yosemite that this was Aboriginal land that this land was cursed because the Indians were killed or forced to relocate. Mm-hmm. And in these reports that I read, there's uh, hauntings uh, in the park and some lodges and hotels. Uh, there's lots of people disappearing, even in the valley area where there's lots of people. Sometimes people just go for a short walk and they disappear or mm-hmm. they go to more out of the way places. Uh, there's unusual accidents. They fall off the cliff. Some people feel like you know something is pushing them. But that report is online. If you type in uh, Yosemite, Yosemite National Park curses. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, but, but these curses are also in other parts of North America, mm-hmm. uh, these Indian curses. Like, have you heard of uh, uh, the book uh, Mothman Prophecies in the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember the author, John Keel? Right. He was investigating... Uh, he was a big-time UFO investigator. Uh, yeah, Gordy, can you move over to your left a more? You're, you're... Okay, sorry. I'm... That's okay. There okay. you go. I want the people to see you. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> They'll move a little bit soon. If I move up, just let me know. Okay, go ahead. But anyways, I, I read the book, John Keel's book, Mothman Prophecy. That, that was an earlier book I read, you know, written by Keel. Uh, Keel does believe that these areas that are portal areas are areas uh, where he believes that there could be interdimensional fallen entities or even demons. He mm-hmm. is not against the possibility that uh, this demonic activity is happening here. When he went to um, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and as depicted in the movie, right, he was having uh, paranormal experiences right in the town, over the phone. He had encounters with men in black. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a, a being called... Uh, um, Indrid Cold that he heard about. I don't know if he personally read, but there were sightings of Mothman. Huh. But then he found out, and I, I found out as well, there was an old Indian curse related <laughs> to Pleasant Valley, Virginia. Again, the Indians were mistreated mm-hmm. by government people or the, the, the military. Uh, some of the Indians were killed. So, so they cursed the land. 
Uh-huh. And uh-huh. since that time, there's been cryptid sightings, people disappearing, uh, be people being terrorized by supernatural creatures, big men in black, UFO right. activity. And I think that could explain what's happening at the Skinwalker Ranch as well. Mm-hmm. The Ward Skinwalker Ranch is a name for a, an evil shaman. Right. Who can right. shapeshift. I had a friend uh, who was a famous Canadian crop circle researcher, uh, Chad Deacon. He and his wife had been to England uh, to look at crop circles. Um, but even in England, in this area of southern England, near Wiltshire, Silbury Hill, Avery, there's a lot of paranormal phenomena, ghosts, hauntings, orbs, mm-hmm. uh, UFO activity. Uh, remember um, that electronic engineer who was um, researching crop circles? Uh, what's his no, name? Uh, Colin Andrews. Mm-hmm. I was okay, in fact yeah, I by email for a while, and he reported that there were crop circle researchers that had missing time or disappeared for a while, just doing doing investigations. And sometimes uh, there's people that go into the crop circles and they do meditation, or they put out mental and uh, mental intent thoughts, like mm-hmm. I want to make contact with the crop circle makers. Yeah. <laughs> and so some of these people that have, uh, have done that. They have had missing time in some of the crop circles. And Colin Andrews said to me, there's been people that have disappeared for periods of time. There uh-huh. was a case uh, near Stonehenge where there's been crop circles where some hippies many years ago were camping out. And those stones were hit by lightning. There was a blue glow around the stones. And a police officer noted, uh, noticed uh, this blue kind of glow. And then he went. When he went closer to the stones to investigate, he didn't see any people there. There was no hippies anymore. All their camping gear, all their stuff was still there, but they had completely disappeared. Oh, that was a report. Wow. And then huh. even um, there was another report. There was another police officer that said in crop circles in England, uh, there's been sightings of humanoids, humanoids mm-hmm. that you know look like you know the Nordics or that kind of beams. And they seem to just right. levitate or float above the grain and move off quickly when people huh. see. So there's been high strangeness in this period. But if you go back far enough into English history, that area was a was a pagan ritual site. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stonehenge, Silbury Hill. There may have been human sacrifice there. Uh, Druid at, Druid uh, activities. Right. Same with Ireland. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's definitely a link, a link between places where there's been pagan activity, Aboriginal spirituality or shamanism being practiced. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe at one time people even worshipped devils at some of these places. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, because the Bible says uh, there's a prophecy in the book of Revelations that Babylon is a place uh, in the Old Testament. It's referred to in the book of Isaiah that has become a habitation of, of devils Demons. and every foul mm-hmm. spirit and creatures yeah. like satyrs. You know, satyrs are goat, like goat men. Mm-hmm. So, and then when I was in at, in Scotland researching uh, the Finhorn community, again, there's reports of space brothers and elves and fairies and the god Pan mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. started to appear to people. Again, why were 
new age people were attracted to this area because of the stuff that was happening. Right. So right. the early founders of the Finnhorn community felt that this was an area where the spirits of plants like devas, elves, mm-hmm. yeah, they were there. <clears throat> well, you know, um, Gordy, where um, where the um, CERN, CERN um, thing is over in the Switzerland by Switzerland, France. Um, I did a little research on that, and there used to be a, a god that was worshipped there, and his name was Cernulos. Um, yes, interesting right. enough. The horn god. Yeah, and so, you know, where did they get Cern from? Well, that's real easy, Cernulos. But, um, yeah, he, he was a very a very popular god back then and, um, and and lived right in that area. Well, not lived, but, you know, was worshipped in that area. I want to yeah, clarify it that. Yeah, supposed to be a, a temple to Apollo <laughs> or a... Apollyon or uh, Apollo uh, in yeah. that area of Switzerland as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, I, this kind of hits a little home with me, uh, Gordy and, and Brian, because my dad um, he used to like to fish. He used to like the night fish, actually. Okay. And, you know, we lived in New Jersey, and um, northern New Jersey is, is really beautiful. You know, it's part of the Appalachians up there. And um, there's a lake up there, an Indian lake called Weiweyanda. And uh, so my dad used to like to fish there. And there, there came a time, and I was a very young boy at the time, but there came a time when he all of a sudden he had this vast urge to study UFOs. And no one no one could ever figure out why. Okay. And, I mean, he was having Project Blue Book sent to our house. You know, we would get the little blue the blue, blue okay. pamphlet that they made. I wish I would have saved those. But um, anyway, uh, and I never figured it out. Well, after my dad passed away in 99, I, I talked to my uncle, my half-uncle, my mother's half-brother, and and I said, you know, I never was able to figure out my dad was so attracted to that lake and, and at the same time really got into studying UFOs, you know. And he goes, oh, yeah. He says, you never heard he had an experience up there. Oh, what kind? Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I, 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 he never really told my uncle. But um, to, the, to the day he died, because he became a believer probably about uh, 1980. Um, and, you know, so he was a really strong believer in, in Yeshua and Jesus. Yeah. And, but the one thing that he would never give up was the fact that we're not alone in this universe, okay. that there's 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 beings out there that are visiting the earth. You know, so much as I tried to talk to him about it. Nope. He was adamant that they were out there. And so I'm, I'm thinking that maybe he had a, an abduction experience or you a know? Sighting. Oh, he had a, maybe he had sightings of something up there as well. Yeah. 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 He saw something. Maybe he had, yeah, maybe Definitely. Like a fisherman uh, up in Merritt had that area, yeah. the lake they had missing time or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But your da- is your dad still alive? Oh, no, he died in 99. But um, as a matter of fact, I took his ashes and put him in that lake. <laughs> so, oh, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, he, I mean, he was on steroids when it came to researching UFOs. I mean, we would actually drive over to New York City. Yeah. I'd go to the newsstands over there because he didn't want the magazine sent to the house because, you know, the rumor would start he believes in the little green man and everything else, you yeah. know. So once a month we'd drive over into a newsstand on Manhattan and pick up every UFO magazine he could find okay. and, left them, and left them around so I could read them. So I was really studying UFOs since I was like five years old or six, you know. And Okay, well, so. uh, I met a fellow, uh, maybe I mentioned him before, Al Matthews. Uh-huh. Uh, Al Matthews used to live in uh, Ontario in the Ottawa River, uh, Ottawa area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to show you a bit of his video that Ellie Marzulli uh, did when he was up here in 2016. Right. Here was a fellow uh, 
born in a family that was somewhat Protestant, okay? Mm-hmm. They, they, he said he had a good upbringing, good parents. But uh, there was paranormal activity um, and in his house sometimes, he said, when he was young. You know, uh-huh. He was afraid of the dark and afraid of, you know, some kind of uh, thing in the closet or somewhere, things under his bed. But uh, anyways, he's he was playing hockey with his twin brother and some friends um, at a place outside in the winter when the place was frozen over the, the river, mm-hmm. the, the lake was frozen. And he saw three UFOs um, above, across the lake above a power plant. That sighting alone spurred his interest to study the UFO subject and mm. to look at videos, buy books, and and it resulted in his being abduct, abducted. Mm. Uh, let's watch the video now because it gives you an insight how people that have had no UFO experience or sightings can be drawn into this and end up getting abducted. Okay, sounds okay, good. I'll set it up right now. Okay. Yeah. It's getting dark. Sure Turn on the light so we. I don't know if that's going to bother the screen, but here, let me get... Uh, get well, we'll work on it. Yeah, we'll, we'll figure okay. it out. If it doesn't work out perfectly, we can... You know, while you're doing that, you know, Wei Wayanda was, um, like I said, in northern New Jersey. And remember the French and Indian Wars, um, where the, the British were aligned with um, with certain in, uh, Native American tribes, and the French were aligned with certain, like the Mohawks, and the British yeah. were friendly with the Algonquins. And uh, I think they had a lot of battles there. And I could see that lake being cursed for that reason. Oh, yeah. If there you were know? people getting killed and, you know. Yeah. And it's like uh, Skinwalker Ranch, too. You, you mentioned that. Uh, they actually tell the story there that um, the uh, Navajo were basically almost like slaves to the Utes. Okay. And, um, and when the U.S. government came into that area and the Navajo were basically freed, um, they cursed the land, and they cursed the, um, the Ute Indians also. Okay. Uh, or, I, no, not the Ute, the Uinta, I think is what they were. And uh, so, you know, there you have the curse, and that's where the portals are. I don't, anyway, go, I, I don't want to take up the time, but... Uh, okay, getting back to this Indian land thing again. Uh, recently, there's been a, a town in Lytton, B.C. It's within the Triangle. It's called Lytton. Mm-hmm. And the, ter- the name Lytton is interesting because it was named after Buller Lytton. Remember who Buller Lytton was? I don't remember, no. He wrote a book that was influential with uh, the Nazis called The Coming Race. Ooh, really? Uh, he wrote a book about the, about the rural, the rural, uh, the belief in that there was an inner world with this people inside the earth had this power of the rural. Mm-hmm. So that inspired, mm-hmm. his book inspired uh, the creation of the, the rural society. Ah. And... There's another society called the Fule Society. Uh, Hitler and and some of the top Nazis were uh, members of that society, and 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 the rural society had women that were called uh, they were mediums that had very mm-hmm. long hair. You've heard of Maria Orsic, right? They were trying to channel information from what they thought were aliens from the Aldebaran system. Mm-hmm. That's right. But that's a whole other topic. But it's, it shows yeah. that you go far enough back into pre-Christian history on in uh, in on planet Earth, mm-hmm. uh, back to uh, times before Christ, 
you have cultures that were very pagan, that worshipped many different gods. Mm -hmm. So those right. cultures left their imprint on the land and on, on certain places in Europe and here in America and mm -hmm. Canada. So that could explain also why these areas where all this paranormal stuff is happening is, is, is more intense in those places. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's have okay. a look at what uh, Al said about his um, background and experiences. Okay, I'm just setting this up, so... Okay. Al, you've had multiple experiences, and some of these experiences were very troubling to you. I want to go back uh, to really the beginning of your life. When you had your first uh, a little to the left, Gordy. What were you thinking when you saw this thing? I was uh, just a young guy. The other way. A hockey rink in Ottawa, uh, middle of winter, uh, with my twin brother and probably about eight other kids. Beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and one one of the guys looks up and says, "We all stopped and looked up. We saw three UFOs. That's what we even called them back then, uh, hovering in formation like a triangle. The sun was beaming off these things." We looked at them and we're all like mesmerized, going, "What are those?" And all of a sudden, they moved like that in the sky, just darted, and then stopped again. Everyone ran into the shack, the changing room, except for me. I stayed out on the middle of the ice and stared at these things. And I said, "I need." In my mind, I said, "I need to know what these things are." Right after that, I got an angelic feeling. That's the only way I can describe it. Angelic feeling of these things of warmth and love. Euphoria? Euphoria is another word you could use. What do the craft look like? They were like uh, disc-shaped objects. Uh, they were all exactly the same, same size, Colors. no sound. Uh, silver, silver, silver with gold, a, silver, um, gray silver with the sun just beaming off these things and no sound. It was very spooky. Never seen anything How like close that. Were they to I would say a mile away, because this pollution plant where they were hovering over was a mile away from the rink. Okay, and they were right over that. Oh, hovering right over, maybe a hundred feet up. Okay. Yeah. Pretty crazy. Now, this was the first of many experiences that would follow that. That's correct. And um, you, I, I want to sort of cut to the chase here. There was one incident which had to do with this woman. Um, we basically changed her appearance right in front of you. Tell us about that. <laughs> that was mind-blowing. Um, in 2008, September, I'll always remember that. I was with uh, working for Williams Moving and Storage for their overseas division. We had a container coming in from Kuwait. The lady's name was Diane Kelly. I met her with one of my employees. I brought him along to give a hand. He had heard all my stories, and he didn't diss me. He, he said, you know, I've heard strange stuff like this. My parents know about it. He didn't make fun of me or any, anything like that. And um, anyway, we met, met this woman. She showed up in her car. Um, I said, hi, I'm Al. This is so-and-so. We're here to unload your container. Welcome to Canada. Shook her hand, and I noticed she was a very pretty lady, well-dressed. She was wearing the weirdest glasses I've ever seen in my life. They were just like off the charts. I'm like, 
how, how so what do they look like? They were black and wrapped around. Okay. So it would cover the side of her eyes so no sun would get in. Okay. So I sort of figured, oh, maybe she has an eye problem or something. Sure, sure. But anyway, we moved on from there. The conversation went this way. I said, for some reason, it was September, the rainy season's coming in Vancouver, and I was just making simple conversation. I said, why are you moving from Kuwait? It's so nice over there now. The war is over, and, you know, you're coming back here. And she goes, she changed totally. She goes, there's going to be another war, another war. And for some reason, I said, well, don't you believe in a higher power? I don't know why I said that, but that's what I said. And she looked at me, and she goes, what do you mean now, UFOs? And I'm like, what? So out of the blue, she just, she just said that. This. And I said, and she what? still has a dark glass. Yes, that's right. I look at my other God that's working for me, and he just sort of shrugs his shoulders. He heard her. And I go, what do you mean by that? And she goes, we were supposed to meet. I know that you know. And I go, know what? She goes, I know you've been taken by them many times, and so have I. So you let me get this straight. You've never met this woman before? Not at all. Not at all. She has no idea who you are. Exactly. I mean, she has no idea of, of, of not only does she not know who you are, but she has no access to figure out who you are. Oh, totally. Like, nothing. So she's she's saying something which completely startles you. Was that a fair? My jaw dropped. Okay. I'm thinking, is she reading my mind? So but she looked human. Totally human. Totally human. Okay. Totally human at this point. Except for those weird glasses. Okay. But then and again, you dismissed yeah, that the eye thing. That's right. And okay. thinking something else, right? But once she did that, I'm thinking, oh my God, here we go again. It's fast forward 2008 now when this happened. And my encounters back east that got very, very disturbing were in 1993 and 94. I, I got out of Ottawa, drove out from there in two days to Vancouver to get away from this stuff. And this is how many years later? So you were you were trying to flee the experiences. They got so traumatic, so traumatic back east, I had to get out of there. Okay. Scary, beyond scary. So then this happens. And nothing had happened after I moved out here until I met this lady. Okay. Yeah, that was shocking. Um, she would do things like in the elevator going up to the floor where we're storing her furniture, she would whisper in my ears, in my ear and say, they're listening. I go, who's listening? They're listening. They're listening. I go, who's lis listening? And she goes, them, you know, the grays. She goes, they're always watching. And I told her. I you, never had her you never had her words with any of this stuff. It's no, just coming out. I know. know. And okay. starting to spook me and my other assistant. Sure. I said, <laughs> I mean, that's just out of the blue to start doing this stuff. I said, look, I'm here to do a job. Um, you're really starting to creep me out. That's the word I had to use. And that would, I mean, it would creep anybody out. I mean, you would, you know, what's going on here? I know. How do, you know what, what are you talking about? This woman sounds really crazy, certifiable. To say things like this. I got the job done. Okay. What I did do, and I, I think it's human nature, I gave her my number. Okay. Because. Okay. Mistake number one. Big mistake <laughs> number one. And it was just like human interest and how do you know this stuff? I need to eventually talk to you more. I gave her my number. As you said, big mistake. She phoned me up about a week later and said, Oh, I'm just down the road from your place, because I told her the area where I live. And she goes, why don't you come down for a drink after work? 
So I said, sure. I'm with my buddy once again that met her the first time. Same, goes, same guy. Yes. Okay. I said, hey, do you want to come? I'm just going to go home and clean up. And he goes, not a chance. I, <laughs> he goes, what are you doing? Stay away from that. I said, no, I got to find out. Just my intuition. I got to find out more about this. He goes, no, I'm not going. I went. And that's when the strangest thing ever happened in my life. And I've had some strange things. Um, I walked into their place and buzzed up. Her friend answered the door. It was her apartment, a beautiful two-story condo right on the Fraser River, in obviously in BC. And they're both out on the deck, and they have these big, big glasses of wine. Now, did, this, did the friend look normal to you? Totally normal. Okay. And she introduced sunglasses? No, no, just normal. No sunglasses. She, she introduced her friend. We sat down on the deck. She's still wearing those strange glasses. Their glasses of wine are right in front of me on a table. And out of the corner of my eye, I notice this massive black fly in a wine glass. And it's almost like it was stuck to the glass. It didn't make sense. It wasn't moving. And I pointed it to her. I said, oh, look, there's a big fly in your wine glass. I'll grab some Kleenex and get it for you. She smiled at me and she goes, no, I'll get it. She put her finger in the wine glass. She didn't crush the fly. The fly stuck to her finger. And she put it towards her mouth and went like this. And I just looked at her and I go, holy smokes. So that's the starting of how strange this got. And it only got stranger. Uh, from there, she took off her glasses. She got on top of me while, while I was sitting in my chair. And she started lifting up my shirt. And I said, what are you doing? And she goes, oh, uh, how old are you? You're well preserved. Let me stop you there. So she, she gets up from the table. She comes up over to you and you allow her. Now, would that is that like a normal reaction for you? Would you have no? Because you have a girlfriend at this yeah, time. That's right. So this is kind of weird yeah. that you're allowing her to do this. At first, I was once again shocked. shocked. After the fly thing, she sits on me, and I, and, and, kinda, and I realized she'd been drinking, and so this is not typical behavior for you. No, not at all. Okay, so um, this is something normally you wouldn't you wouldn't allow this. No, I okay. figured it's because she'd be drinking. But it got a little carried away when she started asking me how old I was. And the glasses were off, as I said. She went to kiss me. And I pushed her away. And her eyes shape-shifted. Now, when you say, say what did they look like before? What did they Just normal. I, I don't know if they're brown eyes. Or they certainly weren't... Uh, like blue eyes or emerald eyes, I would have noticed that right away. I think they were just normal, uh, darker uh, looking eyes, but the whites were white. Uh, when I pushed her back, when she went to kiss me, I pushed her back. Her eyes shape shifted. They went, the whites went to a golden color with black streaks and her pupils shrunk. I upset her and that's what happened. When I pushed her back, her eyes shape shifted and I pushed her off me. That was my reaction. And I said, what the heck was that? And she gave me the most evil laugh you've ever heard. And I got the heck out of there. Wow. Oh. Do, 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 do. <laughs> what a first date. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, um, i got to turn the lights back on. Okay. That's crazy. Yeah, so, yeah, as uh, I don't know if you heard of what he said, uh, he had no, 
he didn't have much interest in the UFO subject. Maybe he didn't say that. But after seeing these UFOs when he was playing hockey with his brother and friend, that's when he started to, um, uh, you know, uh, research the subject, look into it, read, you know, like what happened to your dad. Right. And so this kept happening until he started having abductions uh, in in um, Ontario and Quebec. He was actually abducted once when he was driving back to his cabin and he had missing time. The car was taken with him in it into the UFO. And when he finally was led back to the ground slowly um, and was able to drive the car again, uh, he was quite shaken by what happened. It took him uh, maybe, uh, I think he was about over 100 kilometers further than where he was supposed to pull off. It took him a couple of hours or more to get back to where he was. Uh, But he's had... Paranormal experiences like that, but other people in that area, uh, Quebec, the Gatineaus, and that area also used to belong to Indians, he found out. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. There's a lot of places in the, in, in Canada, uh, provinces like Saskatchewan, that's an Indian name. Manitoba mm-hmm. is an Indian name. Yeah. Cowichan. Uh, there's there's lots of names in in, uh, in the provinces and provinces themselves that have Aboriginal uh, uh, history and so there is another example of um, he didn't disappear permanently you know he did get abducted and he was set back maybe um, maybe they wanted uh, to see if he could be the, the right kind of person to choose mm-hmm. but they didn't take him fortunately permanently there, there are throwaways they call them you know people that they know they can't use or that have exhibited traits that they know is going to be too hard to overcome. <laughs> well, and, we uh, heard what Jesus said, many are called but few are chosen. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I guess it works on the flip side too. Yeah, right? It could work on that side. <laughs> it's good not to be chosen. <laughs> yeah, really. so, oh, goodness. Um, now, there's another case uh, if you have time to look at it. Again, it, it shows a fellow on Vancouver Island and they're in the, in the town of Duncan. He was supposed to be uh, a genius at fixing things, you know, mechanical things. Mm-hmm. He could fix a plane. He could fix a lot of locomotive, a car, all kinds of things that uh, perplexed other people. He seemed to have a genius on how to fix things. Uh, his name is Granger Taylor. Uh, his case is very interesting, too. But in his case, uh, he made contact with these beings. And it resulted in him disappearing permanently, never to be seen again. This case uh, has been investigated by uh, uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They did a documentary on it. And there's been other people in radio and other people investigating his case. So this is the last video we can look at. And then we can discuss, you know, again, theories about why it's happening to certain people. Sure, sure. And maybe what the scriptures say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. Let, let me just find this uh, video of Granger Taylor. That shouldn't be hard to find. I've got a book. Okay. Are these videos on your um, Noah's Dove site on YouTube? Uh, the disclosure video thing with uh, um, it is on my uh, uh, YouTube channel, mm-hmm. Noah's Dove, but it's also on Ellie Marzuli's Ellie Marzuli Net uh, website. Just go okay. to the disclosure and you watch the whole video. The whole video 
uh, is, I think, close to an hour long. So there's interviews with other people in the States and, uh, and here that have had UFO encounters and sightings. And then also he interviewed some pastors as well and what, what they thought was going on. Uh, L.M. Arzulis believes this is part of the, you know, an end time great deception. Mm-hmm. That we're not, de- we're dealing with beings that are masquerading as ETs. They could have a, a they they seem to have an interdimensional fallen nature. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But they're not pretending to be fallen. They're not. There's, if you know, to ask the right questions, you investigate what their philosophy is. You can tell that they're fallen. We can talk about that later. But sure. let me just. I'll find this last video of uh, Granger Taylor. Okay. And then we can... Okay. Here it is. It's insurance broker Charlotte. Just got to get past the ad. Taylor. No kinetic conundrum. He couldn't conquer. Okay. Evidence that Granger Taylor had found... Here. Just, I'm not going to start at the beginning. They're okay. introducing people that are geniuses of things, and and then they introduce him as a mechanical genius. Okay. Mm-hmm. So sure. here, here, here it's. Uh, okay. All right. Without further ado, here are the fascinating tales of three crazy Canadian inventors. The youngest mad scientist on our list is Granger Taylor, whose mysterious disappearance in 1980 remains one of the greatest mysteries of Vancouver Island. Granger Ormond Taylor was born on October 7, 1948, in the logging and fishing town of Duncan, British Columbia, situated on the southeastern shores of Vancouver Island, about halfway between Victoria and Nanaimo. His biological father died when he was an infant having drowned in northwesterly Horn Lake during a vacation at the family cabin. When he was two years old, Granger's mother, Grace, married a widower named Jim Taylor, who had children of his own. Granger spent his earliest years growing up with his seven siblings, which included three biological siblings, three step-siblings, and a half-brother. From an early age, it became clear to Mr. and Mrs. Taylor that Granger was an unusual child. He was withdrawn and socially awkward, but what he lacked in social skills, he more than made up for in an extraordinary aptitude and appetite for mechanics. Granger spent much of his childhood alone in his bedroom, dismantling toy gadgets in an effort to understand their inner workings. Despite his considerable intelligence, Granger displayed little interest in his studies and dropped out of school after completing grade 8. He began working as an apprentice for his neighbor, an auto mechanic, and eagerly absorbed all the knowledge the old tradesman could impart. After a mere year of apprenticeship, Granger decided that he had acquired all the skills necessary for him to strike out on his own. He set up shop in his parents' forced side property and began to tinker away at his own unconventional projects, many of which he would go on to sell to collectors or the provincial government for impressive sums of money. It soon became evident that Granger Taylor had found his calling. At the age of 14, he built a single-cylinder automobile which is now on display at Duncan's B.C. Forest Discovery Center. Uh Two years later, he rebuilt an abandoned bulldozer that professional heavy-duty mechanics had dismissed as unsalvageable. In his early 20s, he decided to resurrect a derelict steam locomotive he found rusting in the rainforest, with alder trees growing through the chassis. 
It took Granger two years to restore the train to full working order, whereupon he laid tracks for it through his parents' garden and began taking neighborhood children for rides in it, his workshop having become something of a local attraction. It seemed that there was no mechanical mystery too daunting for Granger Taylor, no kinetic conundrum he couldn't conquer. On New Year's Eve, 1969, about half a year after Granger had finished hauling the last piece of his rusted train onto his parents' property, something strange took place at the Cowichan District Hospital, not too far from Granger's home. At about 5 o'clock in the morning, while tending to patients in the geriatric wing, four nurses working night shift allegedly saw a silent, brilliantly lit flying saucer hovering outside the window about three stories off the ground, near the children's ward. Doreen Kendall, the first nurse to observe the object, claimed to have witnessed two humanoid pilots standing in the craft's cockpit through its transparent window. The nurses gazed in amazement as the craft drifted behind a grove of trees before zipping away into the night sky like a shooting star. Later that morning and throughout the following night, citizens from all over Duncan and the surrounding area, including a handful of elementary school teachers and a pilot of the Royal Canadian Naval Air Service, came forward with reports of a similar-looking UFO spotted throughout the region. For months following the incident, flying saucers and visitors from outer space were the talk of southwestern Vancouver Island. It seems likely that Granger Taylor was bitten by the same UFO bug that had smitten so many of his fellow islanders in the early 1970s. Not long after he applied the finishing touches to his steam locomotive, he apparently developed an interest in the dynamics of air travel earning his pilot's license and beginning restorative work on a scrapped World War II Kitty Hawk fighter plane, which he would eventually sell to a private collector for $20,000. By the late 1970s, Granger had wearied of conventional mechanics, which no longer seemed to challenge him. Instead, he turned his attention to the greatest aeronautical question of all, the propulsion of flying saucers. No engineer on Earth had yet been able to conceive an engine which could enable a huge metallic disc to maneuver as tightly, rapidly, and silently through the air as the flying saucers described by UFO witnesses. Granger Taylor decided to tackle this enigma, which had apparently baffled the most brilliant minds of military aerospace, and start on his magnum opus, the construction of a real-life flying saucer. Granger began his quest by building a private office the same size and shape as the quintessential UFO. <laughs> Aided by the children and teenagers who often came to watch him work, he scavenged two radio tower satellite dishes from the local dump and constructed a cylindrical building at the edge of his parents' garden, which he erected on stilts. After decorating the sides of the metallic structure with a lightning bolt design and a port-like window, he outfitted his UFO with a cast-iron wood-burning stove, a couch, and a television. Finally, Granger stocked his new study with science fiction novels and pseudoscientific books on UFOs, which were intended to stimulate his ingenuity. His office complete, the mechanical genius hunkered down with his books and his notes and began to consider the question of UFO propulsion. Throughout 1979 and 1980, Granger Taylor spent much of his time alone in his backyard UFO, sitting in quiet contemplation or pouring through his many books. Then, after many months of deep pondering, something extraordinary happened. One night, while lying in bed, Granger was purportedly contacted by extraterrestrials. According to Robert Keller, 
a troubled teenager whom Granger had taken under his wing, and one of the few souls with whom he shared his incredible experience. Granger explained that beings from beyond our solar system had introduced themselves to him telepathically. In the months preceding the incident, the machinist had attempted to contact extraterrestrials via a sort of radio he had devised. Perhaps, he surmised, his willingness to communicate was what prompted the aliens to choose him. Granger would go on to have several more alleged telepathic conversations with the extraterrestrials. During these incidents, he repeatedly asked the aliens questions about the propulsion source of their saucer-like vehicles, but all they divulged was that the secret had something to do with magnetism. In October 1890, an elated Granger Taylor confided in Keller and another friend named Bob Nielsen that the aliens had invited him on a trip through the Milky Way galaxy. His younger friends couldn't entirely believe Granger's story, suspecting that the eccentric genius had simply experienced a strange dream or some sort of hallucination. But they couldn't entirely discount it either. If an extraterrestrial intelligence were to contact anyone on Earth, they believed that Granger would undoubtedly be their first choice. Despite their earnest entreaties, Granger refused to take his eager friends with him on his upcoming interstellar voyage, claiming that they had too much to leave behind on Earth. He disclosed that the aliens planned to pick him up on a rainy night so that the general public wouldn't see their spaceship. About a month later, on November 29, 1980, the town of Duncan was rocked by what newspapers dubbed the Storm of the Century. Thunder, lightning, torrential rain, and gale-force winds descended upon the city, uprooting trees and downing power lines. At 6 o'clock that evening, right before the height of the storm, Granger Taylor paid a visit to Bob's Grill, one of his favorite haunts. The waitress who served him his meal noticed that Granger was clad in his usual attire, consisting of jeans, logging boots, and a brown-knitted sweater. He didn't have a coat with him, and was clearly ill-prepared for the incoming tempest. At 6.30, 32-year-old Granger Taylor paid his bill, left the diner, and drove off in his 1972 light-blue Datsun truck. He was never seen again. Hmm. My name is Scott Harrison. Oh. <laughs> Just listen. This is my wife. My... Wow. The following day, as the people of Duncan were busy clearing the roads and driveways of fallen trees and windblown debris, Taylor's parents discovered that their son was missing. Jim Taylor found Granger's last note to the world taped to his and Grace's bedroom door. This bizarre document read, Dear Mother and Father, they have gone away to walk aboard an alien ship. As recurring dreams assured a 42-month interstellar voyage to explore the vast universe, then return. I am leaving behind all my possessions to you, as I will no longer require the use of any. Please use the instructions in my will as a guide to help. Love, Granger. On the back of the note was a hand-drawn map, which some have interpreted as a depiction of Waterloo Mountain, located about 15 kilometers or 10 miles southwest of the Taylor home. Jim Taylor and his sons searched high and low for Granger, checking hospitals and driving lonely logging roads in the hope of finding some clue as to the eccentric genius's whereabouts. In accordance with his note, they looked through his will and found that he had replaced the word deceased with departed throughout the document. Huh. They might, however, they could find no trace of the missing man nor his blue Datsun truck. 
Months turned into years, yet the fate of Granger Taylor remained as mysterious as it had been on that fateful morning of November 30th, 1980. On June 29th, 1983, the date of Granger's scheduled return from his trip through the cosmos, Granger's stepbrother, Douglas Taylor, who worked for the Canadian Coast Guard at the time, sat out for half the night on the deck of his patrol boat, scanning the night sky for any sign of Granger and his alien spacecraft. His heart was heavy when he turned in for the night, a promised ship having failed to appear. In April 1986, six years after Granger's disappearance, a municipal works crew discovered an artificial crater several meters in diameter off Mount Prevost Road on the slopes of either Mount Prevost or Northeasterly Sicker Mountain, both of which overlook northwestern Duncan. Scattered in the vicinity of the crater were rusted and discolored fragments of what appeared to have once been a truck. The local Royal Canadian Mounted Police subsequently investigated the scene and discovered two shards of what proved to be human bone, not far from the depression. Many Duncan residents, including the police and several members of Granger's family, believed that these bones constituted the last remains of Granger Taylor. As DNA profiling was in its infancy at the time and unavailable to the force on Vancouver Island, that suspicion was never definitively confirmed or refuted. In the wake of the sobering discovery, a number of theories were put forth pertaining to Granger Taylor's last moments on Earth. Many believe that on the night of November 29, 1980, Granger had packed his Datsun full of dynamite, which he used for removing tree stumps, driven into the wilderness, and either deliberately or accidentally blown himself and his vehicle to smithereens. Some believe that Granger's inability to solve the mystery of flying saucer propulsion had eaten away at him during his long hours of self-imposed isolation that typified his final months. Unable to cope with his failure, he set out with the intention of taking his own life, concocting the tale of his interstellar voyage in an attempt to ease the pain of the friends and family he would leave behind. Others have suggested that, like the ill-fated mm. Heaven's Gate cult, whose members committed mass suicide in 1997, Taylor may have been under the misguided impression that he would need to leave his earthly body in order to board the spaceship he believed had come to take him away, and had set out to achieve that purpose. Some of those who knew him best, however, were adamant that Granger Taylor was not suicidal. If he did blow himself up with dynamite, then it must have been accidental. Perhaps he had brought dynamite into the wilderness with the intention of using it in some way to inform the extraterrestrial astronauts of his whereabouts, or to somehow facilitate his journey into outer space. Through some terrible accident, the explosives had detonated prematurely. Others still, however, including Granger Taylor's late mother Grace and his friend Robert Keller, believe that Granger Taylor was picked up by extraterrestrials on that stormy November night, just like he said he would be. Perhaps he is still hurtling through outer space in an alien spacecraft, exploring the galaxy and studying alien astronautics to his heart's content. After all, according to Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, time dilates for objects traveling near the speed of light. Perhaps one day, a 35-year-old Granger Taylor will return from his 42-month voyage to find a very different Duncan to the one he left, where phones are cordless, cars drive on their own, and residents still puzzle over the fate of that quirky genius who disappeared on a stormy night so long ago. Wow. Mm. I don't know, I'm going to share the lights back on. Okay. It sounds like... What? 
sounds like a Tesla. Yeah, yeah. He's a Tesla ahead of his head of his time. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Brian was just saying that he's like almost like a form of Tesla. Yeah, I think you know? there could be some parallels there. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but Tesla even claimed he had uh, he got signals somehow for radio transmissions from Mars, right? Yeah, that's right. They thought he was in contact with aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, anyways, uh, so those are yeah uh, three videos and some of the cases. Uh, any you know, any comments so far? Yeah. Any, well, Gordy, I've watched um, some shows that, you know, are, are not uh, UFO related. Yeah. But, uh, you know, give cases where people have disappeared. And um, and it's like, well, where did they go? Well, anyway, um, one of them was uh, this little boy. Um, he was out playing and he, he disappeared. They found his footprint tracks, I think, five or six miles away in a pasture in the snow because it snowed out. And then uh, they they kept looking for him and looking for him and looking for him. And uh, I, I don't know what the time frame was. It might have been a week or so later. Yeah. Uh, they found uh, they found him. But now it was almost in the triangle too. It was weird. Um, so you know, here's his house, and then he's over. His footprints are over here, and then 11 miles this way is where they found him. Yeah. And we're talking about a three-year-old kid, you know. <laughs> Uh, that traveled uh, 11 and uh, 8, uh, uh, 16 mi- or 17 miles, you know, in the dark by himself. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, they were they were puzzled and they, they interviewed him because he's still alive. And they said, well, you know, can, do you remember anything? No, I remember absolutely nothing. And that just proves to me right there that it was a UFO encounter, an abduction. You know, it's... Um, Usually that's one of the, t- the, the telltale signs. You know, I don't remember anything, you know, and uh, yeah. yeah, so it's pretty interesting, actually. And I think in the same program, they had a, a boy, and it was at Crater Lake here in Oregon, and uh, he, he got out of the car, and he had some kind of special issue, um, you know, some uh, ADHD or something, I can't remember what, but. And he decided to run across the road, and he ran up this little embankment, and it was snow again. And he was getting ready to throw stones at cars, and his parents told him not to do that. And um, so he ran into the woods. Well, you know, they called the the park service right away, Um, and it wasn't too long until they got out there. And they followed his tracks, and his tracks just disappeared. Mm. You know, um, they never never found him. Eh? Never found him again. Yeah, so. there's been uh, a number of disappearances uh, around Crater Lake. Uh, a lot has mentioned that. Yeah. And also, Mount Shasta is a place where quite a few people going oh, up the yeah. tree line have disappeared. That mm-hmm. was um, mentioned in a, a show called uh, National Park Secrets. Right. Uh, but, yeah. I saw that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Quite interesting. You know, it really is, and. Um, you guys say something, Ryan? Yeah, go ahead. You finish up. No, I'm done. I'm done. Go ahead. I, I had something happening. I mentioned it on a show a while ago, Dave. You've heard this before, and I always thought it was the Lord that did it. Mm-hmm. But it was in uh, when was it? In the mid '80s, I was working at an Air Force base up in Marin County as a carpenter, and I woke up late, and I remember leaving. I was supposed to be there at seven. And I remember looking at the clock in the kitchen. It was like five minutes to seven. I thought, I'm going to be really late. So I got in my truck, 
I drove there. I lost track of time. I literally just spaced out. I don't know. I just lost track of time. Mm-hmm. I get to work. I walk in <clears throat> to check in, and it's five minutes to seven. Oh, it's wow. 23 miles away. Huh. It takes about a 45-minute drive because I'm going, driving through the Bay Area in San Francisco right. or across San Rafael Bridge in the Marin County. So it's 35, 45 minutes, depending on traffic. Uh-huh. And I literally got there at five minutes to seven, and I left at five minutes to seven. Right. Wow. So I used to equate it to maybe the Lord did that because, like Philip, uh, you know, got transported in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And so, but, you know, I don't know. Now I'm wondering, maybe that was something else. I think it was the Lord, but because I know the, obviously the Lord can do anything. Sure. Uh, whatever, whatever these things can do, the Lord that's, can do way more, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, but. Yeah, I lost all track of time. And I remember getting there and I even called home. I go, what time did I leave? And five to seven, six to seven, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I made it there. It was weird. Huh. Oh, so, yeah. well, that's amazing. Like 1985, something like that, 1986. Uh-huh. But I always thought it was the Lord, but maybe it was something else. I mean, I'm a believer, yeah. obviously, but it doesn't mean I'm um, stuff can't happen. Right, right. For reason, you know, God mm-hmm. wants things to happen, right? So, but anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. I never heard that story before, actually. Yeah. 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 Wow. So. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's good. You know, you yeah, didn't get fired. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> one more, Gordy. Um, I was watching the video today, and they were mentioning in, in the national parks that this. I think it was a group of kids hiking on a trail, a large group on a very uh, busy trailhead. And this one particular woman, I guess she was very heavy, big girl, walked around a corner like everybody's in front of each other, behind each other, and she's gone. Oh. Like gone. And yeah. that's the that's what in the video mentioned a portal or, you know, some type of gate to go, they, she went through or something. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 when Elie Marzulli was up here, um, uh, he spoke at the UFO meetup um, um, a group at, at a, a place that we were, we got permission from the people from Reasons to Believe. It's a Hugh Ross uh, apologetic study group. Anyways, um, uh, there was a, a fellow named Sebastian Martin. That I met there, and he he had uh, been interviewed by some uh, by Brian at the meetup group. Anyways, he also lived in the Duncan area. So when I met him, he was living in Duncan in the Duncan area. Uh, he was a successful uh, organic herb farmer. Uh, he had done quite well financially, and he you know he, he bought a he had a place for his family, his his kids. Mm-hmm. And he told me. Um, Later on the phone, that when he was uh, driving on a road near his near his property in his house, he saw a portal opening up up ahead. Oh wow! In front of him on the road, this portal was small at first, but it got larger and larger. And he said he could have driven his car through that portal. Wow! He, again, he didn't he didn't think it was a good idea to just drive through a portal and disappear somewhere. <laughs> so, because he had yeah. a, a white back of the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, 
Yeah, he said that that's where he saw a portal opening up. So, so that's right in the same area where you know, where Duncan, uh, where Granger uh, Taylor grew up, and where he lived. Mm-hmm. The same town. But later, Sebastian sold that property. He didn't want to be in this place for some reason anymore. But he said that uh, he had heard about the Granger Taylor case. He heard about sightings in the area and in the islands nearby, over on Salt Spring Island. So he was definitely aware uh, that there was UFO activity. He was also aware that there was people on the island that were abductees. And he was mm-hmm. trying to meet with them and uh, interview them as well. So Ellie and I and, and Al, we had a chance to go over there. Um, but it was during the winter time when the conditions were not good, so we canceled our trip over there. And it's a good thing because uh, the highway from Nanaimo, from the ferry to where he was, you know, was quite uh, covered with snow. It would have been a bit dangerous. But I found out from Sebastian later that if we had shown up, nobody would have shown up anyways because of the oh, okay. So it's a good thing we didn't, um, didn't go. But... Um, uh, Sebastian told me when he was invited to, um, to a UFO conference, it was in New York State, mm-hmm. to another conference in Eastern Europe, in some Eastern European country. Sebastian is really originally from France, but when he, mm-hmm. as a young person, he was experiencing paranormal phenomena. And then I think he eventually got abducted. Okay, But he was told that his mother was chosen and that his real father was not his father. So yeah. he thought he was a star child because his, his real his real father was some kind of Palladian or yeah, Palladian type of alien. Mm-hmm. So they chose him for some reason and his mother, possibly because of, of his his blood ancestry or something about his ancestry. Huh. Uh, did I mention before that there's a lot of people that have this Rh negative blood? Yeah. That are. I mean, no. I go ahead and talk about it. Yeah. That are being abducted or chosen. Mm-hmm. Okay. This bloodline goes back possibly to the time of uh, the, uh, the creation of the Nephilim. Right. Um, and so, if you have a, if you have um, this blood type. Your ancestry goes back, it can be traced back to, you know, hundreds of years ago, maybe thousands of years ago in parts of Europe. In parts of Europe, like uh, the Basque area between France and Spain and the Pyrenees, Mm -hmm. uh, some of the people there have a very high percentage of this blood type, 49, up to 40 something percent of the people there have this large negative blood type. And the Berger people of Northwestern Africa. Uh, again, they have Aryan features, mm-hmm. which is not typical of African people, but they right. have these features. So the Berger people have these Aryan features, according to Robert Sepper, who's an anthropologist. And he asked the Berger people, Where do your people come from? You have a distinct language and culture. And he said, He said, uh, Our ancestors were survival, survivors of the destruction of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So whether that's true or not, if you go into Bass spirituality, if you go on Wikipedia and type in Bass spirituality, before some of the Bass were converted to the Catholic faith or any other Christian uh, denominations, uh, they were uh, more or less like pagans. 
they had many different gods and demigods and creatures that looked like Bigfoot. <laughs> and that was part of their, yeah, their, their culture, their, you know, and they had a god that was a, a female goddess um, and also a god that was very similar to uh, a male god counterpart that is represented by a serpent or a dragon. Huh. Uh, but they had this uh, goddess named Mar- Mari, M-A-R-I. And so when I found out, remember there was the Fatima case where at the operations of the Virgin Mary started to appear to people? Right. Parts of Portugal and the small town of Fatima. Well, that is not too far from the, the um, from the area where the Basque people live. Right. So, and I found out that some of the Basque people, when the operations to the Virgin Mary were being reported among their people, they just said, "Well, that's just another manifestation of the goddess Mari." Huh. So, and so, again. It could be that certain people are chosen because of their ancestry. If they have Nephilim, uh, have a Nephilim bloodline, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a greater reason maybe to abduct them if they if they're if they could be chosen for some special purpose for these times that we're living in. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up because, and I think we've mentioned this, but if if we didn't, I want to. Um, <clears throat> when I was doing my research into uh, Rosa Mystica. Yeah. Um, that's a um, that was the uh, apparition of Virgin Mary in uh, Italy, right? Or France? The camera. I think it was Italy. Um, and uh, I, I started researching a lot of the different uh, apparitions of Mary, supposedly Mary. Um, and one of them, you know, of course, was uh, the Guadalupe, the Virgin de Guadalupe. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was um, Juan Diego. That was the name was the one that originally supposedly saw this apparition. And uh, when I, I searched a little bit further, and it's really neat when I research because it's almost like the Lord directs your steps. Yes. You know, and he, he almost like he gives you websites to go to. It's yeah, like, helps you connect the dots. <laughs> yeah. And so I found this website, or he found it and gave it to me, and, and it was actually a story of um, the Aztecs. Um, on that same hill, at that same spot where Juan Diego saw the Virgin Mary, the Aztecs used to have an apparition that appeared to them that was, a, a, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a Mex- not Mexican, I want to say an Aztec, uh, you know, apparition that, uh, and it was female. Yeah. So it was, you know, just different packaging now. <laughs> so um, they mimic, it's, it's a mimic that... Um, what is it? It's like it's uh, the same gift in different packaging, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, Elie Marzulli went to Portugal to investigate the uh, apparitions at Fatima. Mm-hmm. And he came to a conclusion. Uh, I don't know why that location was chosen. Uh, but but there was uh, something reported called the Miracle of the Sun. Every uh, uh, For six months, the children that were chosen... Um, they were told that on the 13th of every month, you're to come to this place where I, I first uh, that I appeared to you and tell other people to come as well. By the end of the six months, there was close to 70,000 people showing right. up expecting some miracle. And that's when the miracle of the sun happened. That's when uh, there was a uh, that the day before it was rainy and the ground was wet. So when people got there, 
walked around, you know, they were getting wet too and their shoes were wet. But they, on that day, uh, they saw the sun up in the sky, but the sun emerged from the clouds and the, and the darkness. But this thing started to exhibit all kinds of colors. It started to move around in the sky and looked like it was moving and jumping around. And then it lunged toward the people on the ground mm-hmm. and then it backed off. And they called it the miracle of the sun. Jacques Vallée, who uh, is from France, he knows about the Fatima case. And he said, hey, you know, in the context that we might view things today, we would say that that so-called miracle of sun was something like a UFO phenomenon. Right. It definitely was not the sun. If the sun was dancing around the sky, people all over the earth would Crispy be, critters. <laughs> it, it would have been, uh, yeah, I mean, the whole world would be shaking if... <laughs> if the sun was really dancing around the sky. So it, it appeared to be some kind of phenomenon that looked like the sun in the sky, but mm-hmm. it was exhibiting all these strange, these different colors. But uh, one of the children, uh, the shepherd children, his name is Francisco. When the, the apparition first started to appear, he couldn't see or hear the apparition of the, of the Virgin Mary. And then the apparition said to him, well, the reason why you're not seeing me is that you're not saying the rosary. If you say the rosary, you'll see me. So he started to say the rosary, say the rosary, and sure enough, he was able to see and hear the Virgin Mary afterwards. Huh. But there's a movie that's based on the Fatima case. There was one uh, that was an earlier movie, but now there's a new movie that came out, I think, just a few years ago. But I watched the movie. It was on Netflix. It deals with the apparitions, you know, and the the miracle of the sun and um, and so on. But one of the children, the main ch- uh, child that was the oldest, um, she had a nightmare. I don't know. Did I mention this before? No, she I had, think so. But in the movie version, I think it's based on what happened to her. She had a nightmare where she was hearing the voice of the Virgin Mary in her in her dream. It wasn't a nightmare at first. She just thought that she was hearing the voice of the Virgin Mary in her dream. And this was inside a Catholic church. And then when she heard that the voice was coming from a statue of the Virgin Mary um, in the church, she went up to the statue. And, and then she looked at the feet of the statue. And this serpent lunged out at her with oh. open. So she wasn't so sure that, I mean, that's why it it was almost like a nightmare. Uh She was wondering why this serpent with his teeth open and fangs um, was lunging at her at the foot of the statue. Mm. But if this apparition was not the Virgin Mary, but it was some kind of demonic apparition or fallen angelic apparition, you would expect something like that. Sure. But why did the apparition say, I want you children to say the rosary, and I want other people that come to come to the spot and say the rosary as well? The rosary is a repetitious prayer to, to Mary. To Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the children didn't see the apparition until they called out to Mary. They called out to Mary... Uh, because they thought they could create an echo. They were at a top of a hill or something, and it was a there was maybe a valley nearby. Or, anyways, so they said, "Oh, let's try to create an echo 
and the children said Ava and then Maria, and they heard mm -hmm. the echo coming back. It was shortly after they said Ava Maria that the apparition showed up for the huh. first time. Mm, and then I thought it was curious that for six months the apparition told them to meet on the 13th day of the month. 13, yeah. And 13 is not a number that's associated with uh, with uh, anything with, righteous. Yeah. Blessing in yeah. God, you know, among Christians. Mm -hmm. So there's little, uh, let's say, there's little clues that may give you, you know, people that research it, what's it really behind this kind well, of. Every Mary apparition, if you study them, she comes down or wherever she comes from, um, you know, maybe she comes up <laughs> yeah. uh, and she she demands that the people worship Jesus, her son. And as it goes along during the, you know, when she appears all the time or it appears, um, it changes to where it, it moves up from a focus off of Jesus and it moves, moves and moves. And then by the end, they're, they're worshiping Mary. That's or right. the apparition, and then she's having them build basilicas or you know special spots for where she will be worshipped. So exactly. So uh, that you know, if that was really an apparition of the Virgin Mary, she wouldn't be saying build a a church to me. <laughs> you know right. Uh -huh. I am now your co-redemptrix or your, right. your mediator that you can pray to. That mm -hmm. contradicts scripture where Christ said there's only one mediator. There's only one redeemer. That's Christ. Mm -hmm. So whatever this entity is that's posing as Mary, it's a substitute for Christ. And that that qualifies as what the Bible says is Antichrist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though it has a religious appearance or something that pleasing to the eye right right and so the ufo phenomena has this stuff you ufo phenomena has apparitions i mean appearances of another jesus mm -hmm. okay sonata mm -hmm. uh, there are beings that are extremely um handsome and beautiful uh telepathic very uh, knowledgeable i mentioned valley thor before but mm -hmm. if you examine their teaching their philosophy their messages it has this kind of new age oneness philosophy or that or they are teaching you some spiritual discipline so you can make contact with them through mm -hmm. guided imagery or through creating what is called the magic door so these are all clues that but the scriptures the bible you know gives us um the guide uh, the, the, let's say uh, marzuli calls the bible a supernatural guidebook right it is. It, it tells us what to avoid in the area of the spiritual, uh, what is deceptive, what is what is not, you know, uh, and it, it gives you all the information there. It, I mean, if we just read this, we don't need to, you know, uh, seek for, uh, let's, say, uh, uh, let's say, understanding about the cosmos, the universe, from beings that claim to be aliens. Right. The aliens, even though some of them claimed they created humankind, had something to create uh, other things in the universe, they well, are not the creator of of, it, of, uh, of of the universe for human beings. But there's people in the meetup group that believe that there are gray aliens now that are, help to create humankind or certain humans. Mm -hmm. And then they believe in these beings called the mantis. You've heard of the mantis? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the insectoids. Mm -hmm. You know what I just heard about the mantoids from uh, what? Con B? What? 
Well, do you know anything about mantises or praying mantises? Well, yeah. They after they mate, they eat their their mate. <laughs> the female does and eats the okay, male. Okay, well, that's a fact. But another thing, <laughs> is that, uh, they are very uh, astute. Uh, let's say they're very good predators. Mm-hmm. Well, anyways, there's a contactee that I met uh, through the meetup group. His name is James. Please pray for him. He calls himself James Truth Seeker. He was brought up with some Anglican and Catholic beliefs. His parents, his father was Catholic. His brother was Catholic. And he was abused by them physically. And okay. so, but he started to go to other churches. And he found mm-hmm. some crazy things in different churches that he went to as well. So, uh, so but somehow he got interested in the UFO subject. Uh, he started to see UFOs. And now he's a contactee for a group of aliens that he calls the benefactors. Oh, wow. Uh, they can appear as very beautiful women or handsome men, but the, his most of his encounters have been with the women. Mm-hmm. And they have chosen him uh, to uh, escape it from this world. And, and they told him that he'll be given the keys to a portal so he can escape when... But, he, but in order to win this key, he has to keep trusting them. Oh, if he starts to doubt them, because a couple of years ago, they said, we're going to give you the keys now, this this year. And that didn't happen. So he was wondering why he didn't give it keys. So he's been down to Mount Shasta to look for the portals. He's, he's has friends up in the Kamloops Merritt area, mm-hmm. um, where there's been UFO sightings and people disappearing. Right. And, uh, they say that there's portals there. The Whistler area that we heard about in the first video right. is another area where he has friends up there that claim there's portals. But now he's been telling me that about these mantid beings, because he's heard about them, but he he's not too keen about them because mm-hmm. their real agenda, uh, according to him, is uh, if they are... If they're pure interdimensional beings, they don't need to eat food. Right, right. Um, I don't know if angels eat any food or anything, okay? But if they're fallen angels, you wouldn't expect them to need to eat food, right? Right, right. But what if they're not, if these mantid beings, and some of these beings we call aliens, are not purely interdimensional or fallen angelic? What if they're Nephilim? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, according to the book of Enoch and descriptions of giants in the Old Testament, the giants had to be fed food. Right. You know, uh, in the book of Enoch, when humans didn't feed enough goats and sheep and other things to the... Uh, to they started to eat giants, people. They started eating yeah. people. Yeah. So, so uh, James says that these mantids, uh, if they get hungry... <laughs> They may start eating humans. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. this comes to the scriptures that I want to mention. Yeah, I was going to say we got about 15 okay. minutes or so. To... Okay, let's go through the two scriptures, okay? Okay. Okay, I'm look. Uh, I got a bookmark on Matthew, uh, Matthew 20, Matthew 24. It's also found in Luke too. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's a reference in Matthew 24 to the days of Noah. It was in the days of Noah, so so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. 
For in those days before the flood, people were eating, drinking, and taking wives, taking husbands right up to the day Noah went to the ark, and they suspected nothing till the flood came and swept swept them away or swept all away. Mm-hmm. And it was it will be like this when a son of man comes. Two will two when two men in the field, one is taken, one left behind. Two women at the millstone grinding, one is taken, one is left behind. Okay, now they're going to be taken, but where are they taken? We don't know exactly where they're taken, but he just referenced people being taken away by the flood. Right. They're not mm-hmm. going to be taken away to some nice planet or or to some you know place of safety if they mm-hmm. if the people that were destroyed by the flood were taken away. Right. Okay? Now, in Luke's chapter 17, where's another reference? This one's more revealing. Yeah, it says, when that day comes, anyone on the housetop with his possessions in the house must not come down to collect them, nor must anyone in the field turn uh, fields turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Anyone who tries to preserve his life will lose it, and anyone who loses it will keep it safe. I will tell you on that night, two will be in one in bed, one will be taken, the other left behind. Two women will be grinding corn together. One will be taken, one will be left behind. The disciples interrupted. Were Lord, they asked, he said, were, were Lord, they asked, you know, where are they going to be taken? He mm-hmm. said, where the body is, there to the vouchers. It says here in my translation, vouchers. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. <laughs> will gather. In other places it says eagles. Mm-hmm. And it also says in some translation, it says where the body is, it says the carcass. Right. Or the corpse or something. Here it just says body. But it mentions vultures here. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a modern translation. Uh, so it doesn't look like those that are going to be taken are necessarily taken to heaven. <laughs> right. Right. In in, mm-hmm. in the context of what we just read. Uh, that's where we get back to the Nephilim. If the Nephilim are predacious and they are cannibalistic, uh, they could, uh, yeah, they could, yeah, be feeding, feeding on, on people that are abducted or taken. Well, when you, that's when you just, read, that's just when, a possibility. I don't know if that's the correct. Yeah. Thing. Well, when you read accounts of people that have gone to underground bases and stuff like that, they always, a lot of them will, will say that they were in a room where there were vats with human body parts. Yes. Yeah. And, well, that's uh, right. Uh, aliens would bathe in these. Uh, yeah, cause that's how they uh, eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so are these aliens, these type of aliens, Nephilim, or are they interdimensional, fallen angelic? If they need food and sustenance, they could have a you know a biological nature as well. I well, watched uh, I watched the the video that was a National Geographic video. It's called this uh, this strange rock. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that episode of Will Smith introducing? He was saying that all living things on this planet, whether plants or animals or the tiniest organisms, they need energy. They need right. to get the energy of the sun if they have chlorophyll, and they can you know change the energy of the sun into starches and sugars. But he said everybody, everything else, 
whether whether it's fish or uh, mammals or reptiles, they all, in a fallen world, they, you know, I would call it by in a fallen world, there is some type of predation happening mm-hmm. because without, you know, even humans, we have to eat plants, vegetables, or we have fruits, or we have to eat fish or animals ah, to stay alive. Mm-hmm. So yep. some of these uh, beings we call aliens are Nephilim. They're not just interdimensional. I think all of them have an in- a fallen nature. Mm-hmm. But the Nephilim are called the fallen ones. Right. Okay, That's so whether exactly they're right. fallen, you know, fallen Nephilim that are part human, part hybrid. So that, so when uh, James said, hey, watch out for the mantids. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, if they're... If they are predacious, then you don't want to be uh, taken aboard your ships. But there's people in the meetup group right now. That's like Brian. He's a host of his breakaway meetup group. Mm-hmm. He is trying to make contact with the man kids. Oh, boy. He said that in an email he sent to me. And then he interviewed recently a lady from Oregon who has been in contact or being taken by the man kids as well. So mm-hmm. far, she hasn't had any scary experiences or but um, anyways, at that, I, I don't know if if the scriptures are warning us about something, but it, when it says, you know, where the bodies or corpses are, there are the vultures or eagles are gathered. That doesn't sound like a, a pre-trib rapture to me. No, no. it's, it's or Yeah, because like you said, they're not they're taken away without the promise of coming back. The rapture is a, has a promise of people coming back with Yeshua at the end, right. you know. That's right. Um, yeah. So, um, but, um, oh, man, I had this thought and it left me. But anyway, um, <laughs> it happens quite often. So, Brian, what's your take on that, you know? I, I don't know. I have a different take. Um, I believe it's not the rapture. I believe it's the tribulation. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's the the passage in Matthew 24 and in Luke 17, the whole context is the, the tribulation. Mm-hmm. And so basically when he says one is, take, one is kept and one is taken, it's basically saying the vultures, which is death, represents death. Mm-hmm. To me, it's talking about the tribulation and that literally half the world is going to be gone. Uh, I think over half. Uh, there's a verse, I think it's in Isaiah, I'm not sure exactly. It says men will be so scarce upon the earth by the time the Lord comes back, they'll be as precious as gold. There won't, right. be many, there won't be many people left on the planet after seven years of just total destruction. Mm-hmm. So I, I know, yeah, this is not the rapture, but this is definitely something to do with the tribulation. Uh, he's talking about in uh, verse 24, lightning flashes out of part of one of the sky and shines to the other. That's the indication of the Lord returning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Revelation chapter uh, 19, verses 11 through 18, I think it is, um, or is it 18? I think it's 19. It talks about him coming out of the clouds. It's a space right. yeah. glowing. It's got a, it's shining. So, but if you read First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, and First Corinthians 15, 50 through 52, it doesn't say anything like that. It just describes right. us being taken, you mm-hmm. know. Just describe yeah, also, uh, Jesus mentioned in the parable of the, of the tares and the wheat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The tares are going to be taken to destruction first. Right. 
Okay, so yeah, so uh, so I don't know if that explains why there's so many people disappearing right now. Some of these people don't look like they're horrible people, you know. It's just that they're in the wrong place at the wrong time or something. Uh, but so that, that's why I'm not dogmatic about this. I'm just wondering what does this mean that it's better not to be taken. Yeah, or if you're yeah. left behind. Uh, until the real coming of Christ, that's that's better than being taken, you know, taken like the cares. Right, right. Uh, and then we jump back to that Twilight Zone episode. I think it was Twilight Zone, right, in Outer, Outer Limits, but um, <clears throat> where the aliens come down to bring a book with them. And they finally yeah. realized that the title of the book is To Serve Man. And it was like, okay, well, they're going to give us this and do this for us. Uh, then the girl, fin- uh, the girl, the woman uh, finishes uh, translating it while the guy that is getting onto the flying saucer, getting ready to go to the planet with these things. And um, and she says, no, you can't go. It's it's a cookbook, you know. And, uh, yeah, that was, then, that was- and then it flashes on, on him on the saucer or on the ship. And uh, and the guy comes in. He goes, "You really have to eat. You have to maintain yourself and put on some weight." <laughs> uh, have you read the article by uh, Dr. Carla Turner? It's called um, "Alien Abductions in the Gingerbread House." Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. She is saying that horrible things are happening to some of these people that are being abducted. Yeah. You know that they are being killed. I'm not sure if she said eaten, but. Uh, but she used the illustration of the gingerbread house. Mm-hmm. If you look at the background for that fairy tale or that story, it was a time in Europe where there was famine, and some parents could not feed even their own children. You know, so the children were. They said, "Well, let's find our own food." So they went out uh, and into the darker woods, and they saw a gingerbread house, mm-hmm. and they said, "Well, hey, this is something we can eat." And they started eating it, but then there was a woman that came out and said, "Oh, come on in. There's more food inside." Uh-huh. <laughs> and she turned out to be a witch that uh, tried to uh, put eat them. kids in cages. <laughs> Fortunately, uh, the the girl was smart enough to uh, push her into the furnace or fire, and was mm-hmm. able to rescue her brother and was able to escape the clutches. But she used this. The article she read was. Alien abductions in a gingerbread house. Uh-huh. And if you read the entire article, she's warning that it's not a good thing to be abducted. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, even people that are UFO researchers like Jacques Vallée, John Keel, uh, people that maybe have had some Christian, you know, kind of uh, um, upbringing or some revelation, uh, when mm-hmm. they start to look at uh, what's going on, uh, or David Jacobs' research, they don't see that this abduction, even this contactee phenomenon, is something good. Right. They right. see it something de- deceptive, something possibly demonic, something. Uh, Jacques Vallée wrote a book called Messengers of Deception mm-hmm. uh, after his research of UFO cults and religions and contactees. That's right. But there is a side to the UFO research community that wants to say that they are aliens. They're not mm-hmm. in They're not fallen. So if there's aliens, the logic is, this is what I've heard from people that uh, believe in this stuff. They say, well, of course there's going to be good aliens 
and bad aliens. Mm -hmm. So we just got to make contact with the good aliens. Right. I heard yeah. this from a fellow that uh, you know was involved with the Montauk Project and uh, um, you know experiments at uh, at uh, at Montauk in uh, But anyways, so we have to if we. If, See what the, the UFO disclosure that's happening right now. Um, I saw um, a documentary uh, about disclosure from France, but they quoted uh, people, uh, pilots, and people within ex Pentagon, Alianzo, that were dealing with something that, that is being interpreted as being alien. Right. If it's being alien, if it's alien, then if this is perceived or disclosed as something hostile or a threat to uh, national security or the security of the world, it could get people motivated to accept some type of government to, you know, protect us from these beings that are evil and align ourselves with the beings that are good. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we, if we don't see this phenomena for what it really is, and we just accept that it's alien, we're going to be deceived. Like I had a chance to, uh, 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 exchange some information with Paul Haley, our former defense minister, because he spoke at a conference here in mm -hmm. uh, in Vancouver UFO conference, and he's been debriefed by Dr. Stephen Greer and Shirley McLean. Oh God, help us! Uh, some chapters <laughs> in the book, um, and he has he has a Christian background, but uh -huh. he's saying the same thing. Of course, there's good aliens and bad aliens. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, if he looks at the thing as a, a UFO alien phenomena, alien phenomena, right. you have to say that there's some good and some bad. And right, because they're part of the creation. Yeah, depicted in the uh, the movie Independence Day, the first um, movie, the Independence Day, all the aliens appear to be bad, but in mm -hmm. the second, uh, se the sequel to it, there are these aliens that are here to help mankind. Right. So Paul Kellier has said, well, some of the beings that are benign or more spiritual, they're here to help us. So mm -hmm. that's what we're hearing from the people within the exopolitics movement, uh, the contactee movement, people that are, you know, yeah. So if we don't define what this really is and we just make assumptions that it's all alien or something, right? that it could be something else that's uh, fallen and demonic or Nephilim or something. So it's very hard for a person without the scriptures, without um, the revelation of scripture and the right. to mm -hmm. really find discernment. Exactly. But exactly. Thank you God that he, he has revealed to us uh, the things we need to, to have discernment in these times. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, and the times that are coming. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, or guys, we uh, we're past our two-hour mark, and that's okay. You know, um, I want to thank you, Gordon. This has been a very enlightening um, talk. It really has. Um, thank you for sharing the videos too, because well, that thanks was for having me on again. And oh, hey, you're you're part of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm someday that border's going to open up, and we're going to be able to hang out together. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they're they're hoping that the borders will open, but they want they're only going to allow uh, maybe people into Canada that are vaccinated first. Okay? Right, right. And uh, so I don't know if um, 
I'm we could have a whole talk about the vaccine some other time, but uh, I'm really oh, sure. concerned about yeah. it. Well, well, what we'll do is we'll just sit on each side of the fence and just shout to each other. Yeah, <laughs> they can't stop us from doing that. Well, Lord willing, if if if, if we're meant to fellowship in person, that'll happen. Amen. In the meantime, we have this way to fellowship and and hopefully warn people about what's coming. Amen. And people yeah. may have to do more research than just what we've what we've presented, because mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Um, like if if you try to teach somebody something, right? They may not listen to everything you're saying, right. but if they have to do the presentation themselves, um, mm-hmm. teach and be a teacher, they have to dig a little bit deeper into right. this. So it's not enough just to listen to us. They have to go back and check the scriptures, be good Bereans, mm-hmm. and then look at all the available UFO research from different perspectives and see what matches what God is, you know, warning us about. Exactly. And I think that's why it's important to, to, um, to educate the church first. Uh, sometimes yeah, the churches are harder enough to crack than the secular people. Well, right? I, I've, I've right? yeah. uh, about this subject, uh, the UFO subject, and I said, you know, we should have some people that are Christians, you know, give a presentation on the subject. About the first thing I hear is, well, that's a subject we don't discuss in this church. It's yeah, of, I know. It's kind mm-hmm. of fringe, and you know, people, you know, may find it, you know, a bit kind of weird. Right. But hey, I mean, the culture is inundated with this stuff. If you watch on Netflix, science fiction, uh, Amazon Prime, there's all kinds of alien stuff on those shows. Right. Right. You know, Amazon Prime has tons of alien stuff and pagan stuff. And Netflix mm-hmm. is not far behind. Uh, well, we're supposed to have an answer for every man. You know, I know that's about our faith, but we're supposed to have an answer for every man that asks us, even things outside of the faith. You know, what does the Bible say about this? What does well, God think about this? The you know, why the early church was effective in winning people is not just because they were able to pray for miracles and healings, mm-hmm. but they had an apologetic against the pagan uh, worldview. And exactly. Philosophy. Mm-hmm. And they were able to explain what was wrong with paganism and polytheism and so on. Sure. So we have to be knowledgeable about what other people believe and what's wrong with them or, mm-hmm. you know, or what's wrong with some of the teaching in our churches. That's right. Oh, yeah. From the yeah, that's another iceberg we have to, <laughs> we yeah. Have to encounter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Gordy, for being here. Yeah, uh, it's been very, very uh, enlightening. Um, and we're going to do it again many, many times, I'm sure. Because, Gordy, you're like our, our special guest. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I guess God uh, started to uh, help me connect some dots, and I hope I can help other people. Definitely. You know? no, but it, it's up to uh, each Christian to hear what is presented, uh, you know, check the scriptures, pray, and mm-hmm. may the Holy Spirit you know, guide us into all truth. Yeah, definitely. And and may God have all the glory. The glory. Hey, definitely, definitely. Not by our works, lest any man should It's boast. not by our works and just by our knowledge. It's by what he's revealed to us and what we're willing to accept from him. Exactly. Okay. Okay, guys. Well, let me shut this thing off, and then, uh, you know, I'll stop the recording, and then we'll say our goodbyes. So thank you, folks, for, for, for listening or watching, as the case may be. And uh, we'll be back with you on next Monday. 
So uh, the Lord be with you and um, the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, may he bring you peace in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.